to understand geopolitics, you must have the freedom to be honest. The More Freedom Foundation podcast. Hello, Rob. How are you getting on? Uh, no complaints. No complaints. Uh, weather's fine. Um, just read a, a book by Peter Zihon, which is kind of interesting. Hopefully turning it into a video before too long. Any sneak peeks? Um, I'd really appreciate the extent to which he's kind of like providing an excuse for U.S. actions. I, I, I'm of the opinion that most of the most destabilizing things that have happened in the world this century have been U.S. actions. But no, according to Peter Zihon, there's this end of the world that's coming and it has nothing to do with what the United States did. No, no, no. It's demographics or it's... Uh, uh, just a, a, actually, it's actually not enough U.S. action. That's the real problem. He's not one of these uh, one billion people. No, no, I don't think he's. Uh, I think he's he's fairly optimistic about uh, U.S. population, but I don't think he he thinks any country is going to have a billion people by the end of the century. Maybe India. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it was a good read. Uh, it was interesting to sort of get the. The, the straight deal of his thinking rather than sort of uh, his performances on podcasts. Uh, so some of my critiques, I think, got a little smaller, um, but my main critiques didn't change very much. Uh, the, man, the man does not understand history. So that didn't make you happy, but would you like to talk about Happy Arabia, as the uh, Romans called it? Wow, Arabia, Arabia, Arabia Phalanx. Uh, Arabia Felix, is it Phalanx or Felix? I feel like it was Arabia Felix. I thought it was Felix. Yeah, I think you might be right, uh, Felix. Yeah, Felix. Uh, my, my Latin pronunciation is not not what it should be. I've also heard there's big criticisms of how people learn Latin is actually kind of gibberish and wouldn't be of how they actually spoke it. That's, I've, I don't find that uh, surprising at all. It's fascinating. Uh, you ever like listen to somebody who's trying to pronounce Shakespeare as it was actually said? And it's yeah. very different. The <laughs> rhymes are oh, sort yes, of yes. in different places. It's all it's all very strange. But I think it is great for learning other languages. Yeah. Because so many are stemmed from it. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I, I, I always mean, I think, you know, I think I probably spent uh, a solid 45 minutes on uh, Latin Duolingo once before I gave up. Okay. It's ag agricola <laughs> is a farmer, that sort of thing. Is there much in the legal world that's of Latin origin? Oh, sure, tons. Uh, probably more that's French. Okay. But it's been, gosh, it, you know, Rory, it's been a while since I've uh, put much thought into uh, legal things. <laughs> what I wanted to talk about today is, it's, it's honestly, it feels a little outrageous to say this, and I think I should preface it by saying that Yemen remains an extraordinarily unhappy country. Uh, it's... Uh, its wars are by no means over. Uh, but I think I do see kind of a light at the end of the tunnel on many fronts. So I think it would overstate it to say uh, good news from Yemen. But what I want to talk about today is better news. Better news from Yemen. Exactly. Because uh, Yemen has a, had a lot of horrible news throughout a, a lot of its time. Yes. It's been pretty bad for a pretty long time. And uh, it's all the Brits' fault. Um, you know, I would tend to blame the Saudis more, but uh, I, of course... Oh, re uh, recently? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, not just recently. Even even during the period when the Brits were getting chased out of Yemen in the 1960s, uh, the Saudis were already a serious problem. Arabian Republic of Yemen? 
Oh, gosh. So there's the... There's, Yemen's a lot of countries at quite a short period of time, isn't it? <laughs> there's, so there's the Yemen Arab Republic, what I believe North Yemen was from the 1960s. And then there's South Yemen, which was what? That was it? Democratic Republic of Yemen. I, I'm embarrassed to admit it. People's Democratic Republic of South Yemen. There we are. People's... And then North Yemen. So it's quite communist, the South Yemen. Well, it was. It was. And yes. it's not very communist anymore. So, I, I mean, gosh, I guess we should do a, a quick uh, rehashing of Yemen's history. So it was split pretty much from the 1840s when the British started uh, cultivating Aden. Uh, embarrassed to admit that for six years of Yemen coverage, I've been pronouncing it Aden, but actually uh, some recent research has indicated to me that I should go with Aden. So the city of Aden, the traditional capital of the South, uh, started being cultivated by the British. It, was a, it was, of course, uh, had a storied history going back to ancient times, but started being cultivated by the British in the 1840s and the deserts surrounding and to the east of uh, Aden were put together in sort of a coalition of sheikhs and potentates or what have you. And that became the genesis of South Yemen, which became independent from uh, the British Empire in 1967, I believe. North Yemen always had vastly more people, uh, vastly more uh, agricultural land, was in the 1840s attempting, well, the Ottomans were attempting to take it. Uh, the Ottomans had held pretty much the coast of northern Yemen and occasionally uh, some more interior areas in a period from the 1500s to the 1600s had been chased out by the North Yemenis. And then because the British landed in South Yemen, the Ottomans decided to try and take uh, North Yemen back uh, and were indifferently successful to incredibly unsuccessful for a period of 70 years until the end of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, so that sort of created the North Yemen, South Yemen dynamic, which is unfortunately still a large dynamic today. Does that, does that largely largely make sense? Does that line up with what you uh, you were thinking, Rory? Yes. It, yes, those two um, regions seem to fluctuate. They get the name South Yemen and North Yemen, and then our Republic of Yemen, then People's Democratic Republic of South Yemen, and then there's unification yes. when the Soviet Union falls. More or less directly after the fall of the Soviet Union, it's absolutely, the fall of the Soviet Union has a lot to do with it, but also the truly epic, extraordinary, horrific dissension within the South Yemeni government. Uh, one of the worst sort of political massacres I've ever heard of happened in, gosh, I can't recall, it was 1986, perhaps? It was some year in the 80s. The members of the Politburo, it was a communist, the only communist Arab state, South Yemen. Which made it very unpopular with its neighbors. Uh, the Politburo meeting, a bunch of guys in the Politburo showed up with automatic weapons and let loose at each other. So you actually had the, uh, the, the government of South Yemen assassinated itself, more or less. So when you had the one-two punch of that horrific violence... And then uh, the Soviet Union falling, uh, the stars aligned uh, for a much quicker uh, unification of the two Yemens. For the first time since the 1840s, they got together in the 1990s. 
And this was under the control of Sala, a tremendously complicated uh, figure for Yemen. Uh, you could call it a sort of, you know, you call him sort of evil George Washington, maybe. He's sort of the, the, the founder of the country. Uh, in the 1970s, there was this period where, and still in the 1970s, it was still just North Yemen, which again, always vastly more population, vastly more agricultural land uh, than South Yemen, even though it looks smaller on the map. Uh, there had this succession of one, two, uh, quickly uh, assassinations of presidents. And then Saleh, um, I think a young tank commander at this point, uh, took the job, according to many rumors, because absolutely nobody else wanted it at this point. The last two guys got assassinated. Uh, they figured... A very short life expectancy. Yeah, they figure, you know, well, this guy's going to get assassinated uh, in the end. And actually, he did get assassinated in the end. But instead of getting assassinated in quick succession, instead of dying until 19, in 1978, uh, shortly after becoming president, he actually lasted through the end of the Cold War, through unification, through 9-11, uh, uh, which had tremendous impacts on Yemen as well as everywhere else, through the Arab Spring, all the way up until 2017. Saleh did eventually die by violence. He was killed by the Houthis, who he had been allied with after fighting for a decade or so. But yeah, he did not, in fact, die in the 70s. He died by violence in the 2010s. And now you've brought up another important person, um, Al-Houthi. Oh, well. Hassan Al-Houthi. Sam Al-Houthi. It's a little more complicated than that. Yeah, so there's a, the, uh, the, the Houthis are a family. Okay. Uh, there is a martyr. Uh, there often is in a successful uprising. Uh, there's a martyred... A uh, member of the family, can't remember exactly what his name was, in 2004 or so. Uh, so anyway, to, uh, just so Salah famously described running Yemen as dancing on the heads of snakes. Tremendously complicated place. You've got tribal divisions. You've got religious divisions. You've got uh, just sociopolitical divisions. It's been an urban culture for millennia. Uh, and the folks in the cities have different priorities from the folks uh, who are still living in a primarily agricultural life. Uh, very, very complicated. Uh, in 1992, the country unifies, but then the South decides rather quickly that actually we'd rather not be unified. So there's a nasty civil war in 1994 where uh, Salah crushes these Southern elements. And then... Somewhat successful there. There's all kinds of other stresses, but probably if we're going to try and do this in under three hours, we should fast forward to the aftermath of 2001, where Salah gets a lot of money for counterterrorism. Instead of using that money for counterterrorism uh, against Al Qaeda and whatnot, he actually uses the majority of that money to try to crush not a Sunni Al Qaeda type insurgency. Uh, but because he had actually used Sunni al-Qaeda types, uh, well, not that's perhaps unfair, but Sunni Afghan uh, veterans uh, to crush the South in 1994. So despite taking all this money from America in the uh, aftermath of 2001, he's not actually that interested in crushing Sunni radicalism uh, in Yemen, but he's very interested in crushing this fairly new version of Zaidi Shia radicalism, uh, personified by the Houthis, a family in northern Yemen that it, it's one of those really classic examples, the rise of the Houthis, of a problem that was really, really small and tiny. It was a, a sort of family, a prestigious family uh, in one 
northern backwater of Yemen. And just the brutality and the idiocy with which first Saleh and then with the concerned encouragement of Saudi Arabia itself, the brutality and idiocy with which they confronted this Houthi movement ended up encouraging the growth of the Houthi movement over the course of the first decade of this century. So the Houthi movement continued to grow, continued to gain more and more power in the north, which of course was closer to Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia really didn't like the idea of a Shia uh, insurgency gaining power close to its borders. Uh, so Saudi Arabia started backing Saleh on top of the money that Saleh was getting from the United States for counterterrorism to fight some other people, and he was fighting the Houthis, and it all just was incredibly disastrous, and the Houthis were getting more and more power, and then the Arab Spring happened, and Saleh fell. We got one of those really sad, uh, in retrospect, incredibly sad periods where it's like, oh, Yemen's going to put it together and have a a decent next step without this multi-decade dictator. Uh, Yemen had actually had uh, a much more serious history of elections and whatnot than any other Arab country. Uh, it seemed like, okay, maybe something real will happen here. And instead what happened was uh, it all fell apart quite violently. This provided a lot of opportunities for uh, the Houthis, this uh, Shia insurgency. And uh, shockingly, I, I wanted kind of wanted to say hilariously, but it's actually not funny at all. It's it's just incredibly strange. Uh, Saleh, who had been unseated in 2012 and had essentially uh, created the Houthis through his opposition to the Houthis, decided to band together with the Houthis in uh, 2015, 2014 and 2015. And that coalition of Saleh and the Houthis very quickly took over the country. And in March of 2015, they had chased out the, the sort of uh, nominally internationally approved president. They were about to take Aden, the last big city in Yemen that they had not taken in the south. And that is the point at which Saudi Arabia decided to intervene. So I heard one of the big reasons was they're allied with Iran, as far as I'm aware. The Houthis are definitely, definitely have affinities with Iran. Because I heard the one theory was they would, if they worked with the, the Houthis, they could block off the two most important shipping lanes, which would kind of render Saudi Arabia very impotent. Uh, but the I've never had much sympathy for that excuse, justifying... No real evidence? No, well, I mean, the evidence is there. The geography is there. That's absolutely the case. If the Houthis wanted to just be like, you know... Uh, screw it, let's be legends. You know, what do you, what do you call it? Go Leroy Jenkins on everything? Just, you know, just go and, go and punk rock? Uh, no question that this, the Houthis, probably in 2015, and certainly now, 100% have the capacity to sink every ship going through the Red Sea. Uh, well, not every ship, but they would certainly sink a succession and, and make the Red Sea and the Suez Canal unusable. 100%. But there's this assumption that, like, the Houthis would do that. That's like, I mean, the Houthis are, have been the government of Yemen for about six years now, uh, or sorry, for eight years now, or yeah, I guess 24, well, nine years now. I mean, the Houthis have been in control of, uh, so the war has gone back and forth. There was the initial uh, jump in 
in 2015 and the Saudis were able to push the Saudis, the UAE, very important, uh, the relationship, the conflicts between them, were able to push the Houthis out of the south, the more southern leaning uh, districts around Aden, but uh, quickly reached a stalemate and were never able to do anything. So the Houthis have been in pretty uncontrovertible, uncontested control of the north, which is the majority of the population, the majority of the agricultural land of Yemen, for the entirety of this conflict. At no point have the Houthis used that power to attack anybody's shipping in the Red Sea. They're, they're a government. Uh, and I think they also know it's not just, oh, they're responsible and they're state and they're good actors. It's they know that if they were to, if they were to actually interfere with Red Sea shipping, they would get an instant and massive and horrifically effective intervention against them from the United States. So it's seen as America sort of, I know it's maybe over-exaggerated, but they kind of police world shipping in a way. And if you get in the way of America's capitalism, you'll quickly um, help it make some more in the uh, arms industry. Yeah, the Houthis would quickly, no, I, I think the Houthis would be able to bear up against that. But it wouldn't, they wouldn't, I mean, the Houthis, with the opposition of the Saudis and the, there are, you know, I've, I think I've belittled them in the past and I shouldn't. There are very many real people, real political constituencies, most of them related to those older southern Yemeni instincts that I've talked about that are deeply, deeply opposed to the Houthis. I do think they've been delegitimized by the way that they have worked with outside powers like Saudi Arabia and the UAE, but like they are real. They are real people there. What the North Yemenis, what the Houthis have really benefited from is that the main sponsor for these legitimate, dubious legitimate, whatever, for this 10 to 15 percent of Yemen that really hates the Houthis and really has more or less successfully fought to keep them out of their territories. Um, the, the great thing that the Houthis have had is that the sponsors of the, the opposition to the Houthis has been Saudi Arabia, uh, which has just been an ab absolute clown show. So if the sponsors of these existing 15, you know, 15 percent of the country that that really hates the Houthis were the United States with the U.S. Air Force on support from other U.S. assets, there'd be no question of there ever being anything other than U.S. special forces on the ground. But, you know, if the Southern Transition Council or the whatever the the they're calling the current mess in the South had the support of the U.S. government against the Houthis, the Houthis would probably survive, but they wouldn't be able to operate a fully functioning government of the majority of Yemen, which is what they've been doing for the past uh, nine years now. So they're kind of, you know, they're happy with the way things are largely. They're not going to do anything crazy. No, no, no. The Houthis have been doing crazy things. <laughs> like, don't, I don't mean, I just mean sort of S-tier crazy. They're not blocking shipping lanes, but yeah. yes, it is a incredibly tragic area. Why has Saudi Arabia failed to defeat them? Saudi Arabia just doesn't have a lot of military capacity. Uh, and that's a distinction that's really been highlighted uh, between Saudi Arabia and even the United Arab Emirates. Uh, the United Arab Emirates had troops on the ground, had uh, very effective troops on the ground, and more importantly, much more effective proxies than Saudi Arabia has. Uh, both Saudi Arabia's military might and its cultivation of proxies on the ground have proven to be just absolute dog poo uh, throughout the... Because, you know, Saudi Arabia share a border with them and 
on paper, spent a huge amount on military. So you'd think it should be easy when you when you understand that um, Yemen is one of the poorest countries in the world. It's ranked, what is it, 195th? Yeah. You know, borderline famine nearly every year. And it's hard to believe that the Saudi Arabia can't beat them. Well, Saudi Arabia pays for an extraordinarily expensive military, not so they can use it, not so they can forge a useful military tool, but as in the form of bribes to the United States, so the United States will do the defend work for defense work for them. The Saudis, and this, what's an interesting question is why the dynamic I'm about to describe hasn't, but hasn't held as true with the United Arab Emirates, which is seen as having a more effective military. But the Saudis learned in the sort of independence period across Africa and the Middle East that monarchies had a very uh, short lifespan when there was a competent military. So if you look at Egypt, if you look at Iraq, if you look at um, Libya, probably tons of other examples, you know, the, the British or some other imperial master leaves behind a royal family, and then that royal family gets executed by a uh, modernizing military, you know, the colonels or the generals or this, that, and the other thing. That's especially horrific in Iraq, where I think that some of the descendants of the uh, Arabs, the Arab family that Lawrence of Arabia was working with in World War One, just got savagely, savagely, the entire family, their prime minister, like just, just absolutely savagely murdered uh, by a protest movement uh, and then got replaced by a succession of military folks. So the Saudis learned this lesson too well. They basically said, well, okay, we're going to buy all this equipment, but we're going to make damn sure that there's no competent military that could plausibly replace us. And that's what they've had. Uh, so any at any point where Saudi Arabia has had to get militarily involved in anything, not just as a military actor themselves, but as supporting proxies, they've just failed. They've just failed pretty miserably. You know, Saddam Hussein and the Iran-Iraq war would be a good example. Uh, this has actually already happened in Yemen. Uh, there was a big civil war in Yemen in the 1960s where the Saudis were supporting the old royal government of Yemen against a new set of, you know, the Yemen Arab Republic. Uh, and they lost that one too. Uh, this is this is a really established dynamic for the Saudis. But the Saudis have definitely been giving it a go. 24,000 raids um you know, attacks were military aircraft since 2015. The highest was 800 in one day. Like, they've really Jesus. tried. They've really made a go of it, and they have some of the fanciest kit in the world, and they're fighting people that are, you know, starving. And they've, they're have providing yet another illustration of the ineffectiveness of air power if you don't have a competent group of folks working with you on the ground. And I think where... We get into this, the, the weird intricacies of this, and also part of another Saudi failure is just coalition management. Uh, Saudi Arabia has unequivocally lost the war in Yemen. I would say the United Arab Emirates might have won it, uh, despite the fact that they're nominally on the same side, nominally members of this same coalition against the Houthis. The Saudis have failed at the military objectives that are seen as mostly Saudi. Uh, the UAE tends to succeed, and we've seen infighting over this period of ceasefire over the past year. We've seen a lot of infighting among the coalition forces, the coalition, the, the Yemeni militias supported by Saudi Arabia and the UAE, 
where coalitions supported by the UAE have defeated coalitions supported by Saudi Arabia. So we're reaching this point where Saudi Arabia might not have any natural constituency at all in Yemen anymore. Um, it, it is a quite, quite a spectacular failure. Uh, whereas the United Arab Emirates has got control of islands, it's gotten control of ports, and it's still crucially got militias on the ground that trust them and that they trust. Uh, so even though the UAE has at least theoretically pulled back from this war about four years ago, when it became too much of a foreign public relations disaster for them to uh, deal with, the UAE has arguably kind of kind of won this conflict. Is there any way for Yemen to take back these islands? Oh, I don't know. The, the islands are a really, really fraught problem. I think the, yeah, the, uh, the island question will get solved after the mainland problems get solved. And the mainland problems are nowhere near getting solved. I think what I have some hope about um, is the fact that over the past year, those horrifically damaging, nasty um, air sorties that you were describing that have killed tens of thousands, I think they've killed tens of thousands of children directly. The UN has been criticized. There was a, a report about how they seem to be targeting specifically hurting children and killing a hell of a lot of children. And then apparently the year after the UN said, no, no, Saudi Arabia is not. So there may have been a bit of bribery involved. And also a, a horrific statistic, 60% uh, of children are unable to go to school in Yemen because of these raids. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's truly, truly terrible. But what's really exciting is that over the past year, they've largely been done. There was a ceasefire that came into effect, I believe it was April, it was in early April of 2022. It was renewed once or twice, lasted for six months, ended in October. So the ceasefire is technically over, but the war has not started again. Uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE have stopped bombing. This does not mean that any of the questions have any kind of final resolution. There's still uh, largely the territory of South Yemen, and actually a few little chunks in, in traditional North Yemen as well, are remain under the control of uh, mostly UAE-sponsored forces. That nothing is finalized here. Nothing is finally resolved. Uh, there's still terrible things going on, but the blockades are slowly being lifted, uh, which improves the humanitarian condition, and Saudi Arabia and the UAE can no longer bomb Yemen. And that is an amazing step forward, an amazing step forward. I do think we should talk about the, the concept of the Yemeni government. So I largely as a bit of trolling, and I also believe this, but I know that I consciously piss people off when I say this, I refer to Yemen, I refer to the Houthis as the government of Yemen. I believe they are the government of Yemen because they have governed the majority of the territory of Yemen where people live. Controlled it for nine years, they have a functioning government. Even the biggest advocates of the people in the south of the coalition will point out that the northern Houthi-controlled territories are much, not that they're well-run by any means, but they are much better run. It's an incredibly low bar. Yes, it's a very low bar. Because they but, also have a, um, a caste system as well. Oh, I don't know much about that. Yeah, we're all learning together. Uh, so I make people very angry when I call Yemen, what I call the Houthis, the government of Yemen. Because the truth is, and this isn't, this isn't inaccurate, there is an internationally recognized 
government of Yemen that is not uh, the Houthis. Uh, this is the government that has been given the imprimatur of the United Nations with UN resolutions. Uh, this is the government that has, I'm not sure if it has many embassies, but it's certainly got an embassy in Riyadh. Uh, but this is the government that controls the central bank, that controls the oil. It does not actually control a significant portion of Yemeni territory or the Yemeni people. This is an after effect of Obama essentially saying, giving the Saudis the green light to do what they're doing in Yemen, to do essentially an invasion of Yemen, uh, set up this government that honestly, in a lot of ways, is strikingly similar to the fake Venezuelan president that we put together. It's just that it's been supported by much wealthier and much more serious actors. Does he look like Obama? <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, well... I I don't think it'll work. He has to look a yeah. bit like Obama. Or maybe it's just one American president. Well, so it was It was for the longest time up until, oh gosh, it was early 2022. It was this guy, Hadi, who had, I think, been elected in an unopposed election for a two-year term a decade ago. Uh, so the coalition had sort of hold, held on to this guy, President Hadi, for a very, very long time. It was also incredibly ridiculous because the territory that he controlled nominally, he, he spent very little time actually in Yemen, he spent most of his time in Saudi Arabia, was actually mostly southern Yemen, and he was southern Ye Yemeni, but he was most prominently known as Saleh's vice president and persecutor and crusher of South Yemen. So there's this guy that the Saudis were maintaining as the, the head of uh, a government that really only controlled southern Yemeni territory that was hated by most of the people who were doing the actual fighting against the Houthis. Uh, but they hung on to him because he was the guy who had that veneer of, well, the UN said he was the president because Obama gave us this thing saying that, at the UN saying that he was the president. Uh, so I don't know if that international, I guess people still use the internationally recognized format despite the fact that the UAE and uh, Saudi Arabia just entirely on their own uh, efforts, replaced the government and put together a new presidential leadership council, which is honestly probably better for the coherence of the southern Yemeni factions and probably better in that, you know, it's really hard to convince the Houthis that they should have a peace negotiation if the people they're having the peace negotiation with are actively killing each other. Um, it's kind of hard to convince a person to end a war if, uh, you know, if the person they're supposed to be negotiating with can't agree to the extent of not killing each other. So I think it's probably a good thing for the resolution of the war that Saudi Arabia and the UAE have put together this new presidential leadership council, or I guess year-old presidential leadership council at this point. But the idea that it has any international legitimacy is pretty farcical, or any real legitimacy under any sense of justice or international law. It's a group of militia leaders that have been chosen by the wealthy neighbors that have been trying to extinguish the actual existing government of Yemen for nine years. Uh, so anyway, did I say that there was going to be some positive news here at some point? Uh, you did. You said it's going to be a great happy episode. So the positive elements, the positive thing that has happened is actually something that Iran is largely responsible for. So after nearly a decade of uh, horrific bombing of Yemen, 
And importantly, horrific, it would have been horrific and immoral regardless, but it's worth pointing out and worth emphasizing that it's also been entirely ineffectual, a decade of horrific immoral, and most importantly, entirely ineffectual bombing of Yemen by Saudi. But they also have complete air supremacy, like um, Yemen has no aircraft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they've still managed to do essentially nothing to undermine the Houthis. So it's this, this pointless bombing campaign that's creating this incredible, horrific uh, set of humanitarian consequences and the blockade that they were maintaining. So uh, there was a complex back and forth that we probably won't need to get into. The Houthis, also bad actors, have been trying and failing to take uh, the oil-rich region for a very long period of time towards the end of 20... So that would this... this uh, South Yemen would have uh, 80% of the oil and gas? It depends on how you measure it or where you think Marib belongs. So I think... Because I think Marib, which is the oil-yielding uh, territory, is traditionally more North Yemen, but even back in the 80s, there was some dispute of like, oh, like, it'd be better if we unified to just, you know, extract the oil better. Uh, that's when the extraction started. Uh, but it's contested. And Marib is because I think it was part of North Yemen, but it was also, as is a lot of oil, further off into the desert. And it tends to be the desert areas. It's easier to bomb people from the air in the desert. Uh, tend to be the places where the Saudi, Saudi Arabia and the UAE control stuff. So the Houthis tried really, really hard to take territory leading to these oil-rich areas. In 2021, uh, the end of 2021, they started finally succeeding at a horrific cost of life. I think the Houthis were using child soldiers, really nasty stuff, um, started getting closing in on these territories. So the UAE and Saudi Arabia started really intensifying their bombing. And they did through the stepping up of the UAE that had been sort of quasi withdrawn since 2019. Uh, they did manage to push the Houthis back. The Houthis were pissed off about this and said, well, you bomb us, we'll bomb you. And there had been, to a lesser extent, Houthi-related, largely Iranian bombings of Saudi Arabia, famously the uh, Abqaiq, I'm not sure if pronouncing it right, refinery in 2019. But what happened was the Houthis just started, okay, you're going to indiscriminately bomb our civilian areas, we will indiscriminately bomb yours. And they managed to bomb Jeddah, uh, and they bombed, I think Jeddah was in March of 2022, and they bombed the UAE, which is much further away from Houthi territory, uh, in January of 2022. And I think what the Houthis did with the, those bombings is they effectively established deterrence with uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Essentially took away Saudi Arabia and the UAE's ability to bomb Yemen. Because Yemen can take all manner of bombs. They've proved that over the past decade. Uh, these really careful Vision 2030 Neom uh, industrial hub, airline hub, uh, UAE and Saudi Arabia places cannot take kindly to being bombed. Well, considering that they're so reliant on foreigners. Exactly. You know, it's notorious for, you know, wealthy people that maybe aren't so keen on paying tax. Like one bomb and they're gone. They're not hanging about. Exactly. And it becomes really hard to ensure anything. If uh, you're all of a sudden in a war zone. So I think this is actually an unequivocally great thing that Iran has done, as arming up the Houthis to the extent that they can bomb Saudi Arabia and the UAE back. So, I mean, no question that Saudi Arabia and the UAE have infinitely more 
resources and potential to bomb Yemen, but they are much, much more fragile than Yemen is. It's also Yemen is quite large. It's hard to know, you know, where would you start? And <laughs> considering you've done 30,000 already, like, you, what can you do? Yeah, I mean, they've, they've done infinite terror bombing of Sana'a, the capital of Yemen that the Houthis have held throughout this entire uh, uh, time, and it's yielded essentially nothing. I think probably the bombing was very helpful. Uh, it's the Giants Brigades, uh, and I think it's was Shabba Forces. Don't quote me on that. Uh, are sort of the UAE-sponsored militias that were able to turn the tables on the Houthis and whether they would have been able to do that without uh, the air support from the Saudis and the UAE is is a, is a very open question. So I'm not saying air, air, air power has been entirely ineffective, but it's been pretty ineffective, and now it seems like they're not going to be able to use it anymore. And I think that's unequivocally great. And what's even better is that the Houthis have also been defeated to an extent. This push against Marib was a two-year thing, maybe even a three- or four-year thing. Uh, lost incredible amounts of resources and fighters to try and take these territories, took them, and then were quickly rolled back. Um, and I think that puts the Houthis on the back foot to the point where they're willing to negotiate, and it puts uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE in the position where they're not willing to bomb anymore. And that's that's great. And what we've actually saw over the course of 2022 was a six-month ceasefire. The ceasefire ended because folks couldn't agree on it. Arguments that both sides had fallen down on commitments that they were making. But the the official ceasefire ended, and the war did not restart. And that is amazing. Uh, it seems like the majority of the fighting, unfortunately, in 2022, any fighting is unfortunate, was between different collections of militias in the Saudi-UAE coalition. I think we talked about that a little bit more. Uh, that le I talked about that a little bit earlier, that left the UAE really firmly in charge of, well, the UAE sort of sponsoring all the militias that are left. Uh, so if we can finally get some kind of unity from the South, uh, which unfortunately there's not much indication we've gotten, they're certainly trying, uh, then... If, if we can finally put together an entity that can negotiate creditably for much of the South. When you consider the South, sorry, are you including Aden? I know I'm pronouncing that wrong. Uh, it's Aden, I believe. Uh, yes, of course. Well, th that is, that is... Because I know the Houthis were heading towards there, but it's sort of seen that's like the capital of the South. Yeah, so the Houthis haven't made serious efforts towards Aden for a while. There's been a lot of fighting, sorry, Aden, there's been a lot of fighting in Aden, but it's between, and this isn't just in 2022, this has been an ongoing issue throughout the conflict of militias that are nominally allied against uh, the Houthis fighting each other. Uh, so South Yemen's really, really complicated. And this is another uh, respect in which North Yemen is a real country and the Houthis are a real government. And in the South, you've just got a bunch of competing militias sponsored by outside folks. Uh, because a lot of the way that Yemen was set up, the British controlled South Yemen for 130 years. They didn't attempt to unify it as a single administrative unit until like three to five years before they were kicked out. So they were always most interested in Aden, and then they had these sort of semi-protectorate relationships with whatever sultan or whatever, you know, controlled whichever patchwork of land up through the desert. Uh, so 
South Yemen, and this was a real problem during the, the communist times, is that it was always much more fragmented. It's got this incredible expansive territory that is mostly desert, that is thinly inhabited, and each little patchwork or oasis has its own sort of fiefdom. Uh, so it, it was already, it's not just uh, incredible Saudi Arabia and UAE incapacity that has led to all this infighting, it's just sort of a territory that sort of naturally lends itself to that. So, yeah, um, obviously any functional South Yemeni entity is going to include Aden. Uh, but is it going to include all of Aden? And is it going to be able to, you know, get all... So it, it's, it continues to be complex. It's a large place. I think you kind of think it's small because compared to Saudi Arabia, it seems small, but it's slightly smaller than France. <laughs> yeah. And slightly bigger than Thailand and bigger than Spain. So it's it's an immense place. I know it's a lot of desert, but it's, well, as you say, unsurprisingly, the Brits were involved and kind of made a country that necessarily wouldn't have naturally formed. And now we're seeing the constant unsettled reality of that. Well, I mean, th there's been a Yemen for, there's been a Yemen for a very, very long time uh, before the British. Uh, I'm, I'm always, you know me, Rory, I'm always all about blaming the British. But uh, I think that they were a kind of minor actor. Okay, in their history? In Yemen's actor. It, well, I mean, certainly, you know, there was 150 years there where they held on to a city and, and uh, primarily just held on to that city and certainly had a massive impact. Uh, but I think that even in just the, the 50 years of history that have happened since the British were kicked out, they've become less and less and less important if that makes sense. They're fading fairly quickly. I mean, Yemen Yemen has a history of uh, as a larger uh, entity, actually, than it is currently, including a bunch of Saudi provinces. This is one reason why the Saudis are so uh, adamant against, uh, against the Houthis or what have you, is that there are significant southern provinces of Saudi Arabia that were Yemen up until the 1930s, more or less. So they're very concerned to hold, to hold on to that. But it's... Uh, so, in, in, in terms of hope, one of the most interesting dynamics that I've seen over the past couple months is that it seems to be largely acknowledged that the Saudis and the Houthis are engaged in back-channel conversations. Uh, they are actually talking to each other and talking to each other fairly seriously. And what's fascinating about this, and this is a repeated dynamic from Saudi-Yemeni history, is that the Saudis having lost all control of their nominal side of the conflict, it's possible to imagine them just sort of switching to the Houthis. Uh, obviously, they're not going to, you know, whole hog start supporting or sponsoring the Houthis, but there's plenty of scope for Saudi Arabia to work more closely with the Houthis, and there's also a lot of good reason to do so, because the Houthis control the majority of the country where people live and they have throughout the duration of this conflict. And the region they control does border Saudi Arabia? Exactly. So I think if I were the Saudis, they wouldn't say this publicly, but I'd be pretty damn angry at what's happened over the past year. Not so much with the Houthis as with the UAE, which has pretty much shouldered them out of any real power or control of the government of their nominal proxies. Uh, so Saudi Arabia, this seems kind of ludicrous considering the fact that they've contributed to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people in an effort to unseat the Houthis, but it's, it's possible to imagine 
the Saudis just sort of deciding to reconcile themselves to the Houthis. Obviously with strings attached. Of course, of course. But it would be interesting that if they just reconciled themselves to the Houthis, they would instantly find themselves with more power in Yemen than they've had in a decade, arguably two decades, and actually be it a... And they didn't have to kill any children? Yeah, without having to kill any children. Uh, And it'd be... That'd be great, frankly, um, to see the Saudis... Is there any indications that uh, the new Saudi prince will... What's his name? I forgot. Oh, well, (laughs) unfortunately, it's Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, and the new Saudi prince is not particularly new at this point. And in fact, this whole horrific, misbegotten Saudi adventure was his brainchild. This, This was... So he... He's still, because he is so young, he's still seen as uh, new, but I believe he's been the the next in line. Uh, and of course, the actual Saudi king is progressively more and more decrepit. And he's been the official next in line for a full six years now, I believe, or a full five years now, since 2017. And when this decision to invade Yemen was to, uh, took place, MBS, the crown prince, was actually the minister of defense. So this has always been his baby. I do think that MBS himself has got to be pretty sick of this particular baby. How will this affect everyone around him? Will they still support him? Or is this really done down his credibility? I think that if the Yemeni war had gone down in flames as it should have five years ago, or six years ago, or or four years ago, I think it probably would have been more damaging to his credibility. But especially after 2022 and the oil price bonanza, I think he's got enough weight and he's been in charge of Saudi Arabia for long enough, is personally popular enough, and he is popular, that uh, he could get the credit for ending this horrific debacle of a war that he did happen to start. Uh, so I don't, I don't think, I think that MBS himself probably looked at this war for a period of time as like, oh, wow, my legitimacy is really hanging on this. But I think it's limped along for long enough and he can say, well, gee, I wasn't even the crown prince when this started, even though he started it. Saudi Arabia is becoming a freer place in some social terms, uh, women's rights, activities, that sort of thing. But in political terms, it's even more locked down than it ever was. I think the story, well, I get the sense from Saudi commenters on my YouTube videos that the story of Yemen uh, that they've been getting is largely one of this terrible, perfidious uh, Iranian invasion of Yemen that they're trying to fight against. That's what's really going on, uh, if you read any Saudi press. Uh, So I feel like, well, maybe two or three or four or five years ago, uh, the end, the ignominious end of the Yemen war would have led to uh, real problems for MBS. I don't see it at this point. I don't see it at this point. And I, I, do think, I do think we're at a point where we could talk about the end of Yemen as an international war. And I think that's a really, really, really good thing. Like, it would be really, really great if Ukraine was just a civil war instead of Russian troops being in there and bombing and murdering people. And I think we're closing in on the point where Yemen will just be a civil war. And I think that's obviously not awesome, Civil wars are never awesome, 
but it's much better than the current current status quo. Is there any conferences or any hope for greater peace talks in the future? There's been incredible progress, honestly, over the past year. If you consider where we've been uh, from 2015 until 2021 or the beginning of 2022, uh, and we keep hearing rumors that there's going to be some kind of announcement between the Saudis and the Houthis, maybe it's just not going to happen. But that that it's there seems to be some scuttlebutt that behind the scenes the Saudis and the Houthis are coming to some deeper understanding, and that would be a very good thing. Is there anything you'd uh, like to leave on with uh, Yemen? Well, one thing I am in more hopeful about Yemen than I have been uh, since I started covering this intensely back in 2017. I know that there's a lot of folks uh, in Yemen, uh, anti-Houthi forces, who've got to be feeling pretty uh, desperate or disillusioned at this point, and I feel for them, and I really hope that they can get it together to have a unified government that can negotiate with the Houthis, because if they don't, then we're just going to get back to where we were in 2015 with the Houthis eventually swallowing up all the territory. But just to simply not have Saudi Arabia and the UAE bombing the country anymore um, and have the Houthis, who have always controlled the majority of the population in Yemen, actually talking to other regional actors, it's, it's incredibly hopeful. It, it looks like a war that could be, you know, it's not what's the old Churchill quote, it's not the, uh, it's not the beginning of the end, but it's the end of the beginning or what have you. It really does seem like a particularly nasty and horrific phase of the Yemen conflict could be ending. And if we play our cards really, really right, we could maybe see like a, a true path towards the end of this conflict. And that's just, that's a really good thing. And I hate to do this, but I do think I have to credit the Biden administration for this to some extent. Uh-oh. Yeah, in, in really crucial ways. Obama didn't help and Trump didn't help. So no. what's different that he's done? Well, Obama started it. And Trump, I think by the end of the Obama administration, which he really shouldn't get credit for, honestly, in sort of the last minutes, he was like, oh, wait, yeah, this is horrible. We're going to stop supporting this. And then Trump came in and was like, we're obviously going to keep supporting this. Um, and just doubled down and tripled down and quadrupled down. Um, what the Biden administration has done here is not anything to... Uh, impressive and proactive, but what it has chosen to do is not support Saudi Arabia and UAE and the UAE in really crucial ways. I actually did a short on this. Uh, I obviously am very excited about the fact that uh, the Houthis have established deterrence with Saudi Arabia and UAE, but I do have to acknowledge that this is an incredible betrayal by the United States and I think puts a different spin on a lot of stories we've been reading about contentions between the Biden administration and Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Uh, fundamentally, the, the deal that the United States largely honored has made with Saudi Arabia is that you provide your oil to who we say you provide it to, you uh, shovel your money back into our system, and then we'll defend you. We will defend you. Obama should never have made the commitment to help them with this amoral war in Yemen. Donald Trump should never have doubled down on that commitment, but it is a commitment that the United States made. And in January and March of this year, uh, sorry, of 2022, when the Houthis were launching missile, missiles at the Saudi and Emirati cities, 
I am very certain that the Saudi, I think openly to some extent, but certainly in back channels, the Saudis, the Iranians said, come defend us. Come shut this down. You know, uh, start bombing Yemen. Blow up these sites. This, that, and the other thing. And the Biden administration simply said no. And I think that's that's incredible, an incredibly positive thing. I, I do think that if the Houthis start trying to take Saudi territory, that I would very reluctantly say that that's actually something that the U.S. military should step in and stop. The Biden administration simply said, no, you are bombing them. They're bombing you. Uh, and maybe you should stop effing bombing them, which took a long time to get the United States to that port. It took a lot of pointless slaughter. It took a lot of incredible work by activists, uh, a few decent Congress people like uh, Chris Murphy, Bernie Sanders, Mike Lee, that's that's three political parties represented in just that Senate. Really incredible work to, to finally get the U.S. government to the point that said, no, we won't provide you cover so you can bomb your poorer neighbor. And it doesn't seem like a lot. Uh, it's a very low bar again, but it's a bar that Biden leapt over that Obama and Trump really, really failed to leap over. Uh, so I was very critical of the Biden administration in the early years throughout 2021 and uh, 2022. Uh, I didn't feel like they were doing enough to stop the war in Yemen. Uh, and they probably weren't. They probably could have taken more dramatic steps earlier. Biden could have taken the sorts of steps that he talked about taking uh, uh, during the war. Um, there are a lot of bureaucratic stuff. Uh, there was a lot of bureaucratic stuff that could have been used to slow down this conflict that the Biden administration did not do. But I do fundamentally believe that in the early months of 2022, the Saudis and the Emiratis said, you know, this is our deal. We're being attacked. Defend us. And the Biden administration said, no, man, you're attacking your neighbor. And they finally figured out how to punch you back. This needs to stop. Do you think this is a side effect of America's increased um, oil security? I mean, absolutely. Just the, the general, yeah, the general lack of importance of, but but honestly, it, the, the destabilizing action here, the, the, the thing that put oil production in jeopardy was Saudi Arabia and the UAE's invasion of Yemen. I mean, that's the action that created the problem and created the potential disaster. So I don't know if, I think absolutely the Biden administration is more willing to let to let the Saudis sort of hang in the wind because of our oil security. But would the Obama administration have been willing to let the Saudis do this in the first place if we were as dependent on Middle Eastern oil as we were in the second Bush administration? I think that's uh, I think that's an open question. So the future is potentially optimistic for Yemen. It's better than it has been. It's better than it has been, Ruri. The More Freedom Foundation is also available on YouTube and TikTok. Rob's Twitter is RobOLaw, and he's also written a book called Avoiding the British Empire, What It Was and How the US Can Do Better, and music provided by Kevin MacLeod. <laughs>